uh, to the hearing of God's Word. So I'm going to ask you to take out the Bibles that are in front of you and open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You'll find that on page 1683. Uh, this is the next part of the letter that we've been working our way through here at Trinity. So uh, Li Ching is going to come and read the passage for us and then after that I'll have a few things to say. Thanks, Li Ching. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now... We ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respects of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Okay, thanks, Lee Ching. Can I ask you please to take out the leaf that you were given as you came in? Um, if you didn't get one, you can get them from the doors. You'll see on the inside reasonably detailed outline of what I'm going to cover. The whole passage is reprinted there for you as well, so you don't need to juggle having a Bible open in front of you. Uh, you'll notice near the bottom on the left-hand side, there's a couple of blanks that you'll need to fill in, so there should be pens in front of you as well that'll help you to uh, stay concentrating. Uh, we're halfway through a letter from the Apostle Paul that he wrote to a new church in Thessalonica. The year is around about AD 50. And at the time, the Christians there were facing significant hostility from wider society, and Paul, understandably, has been quite concerned for their well-being. Uh, today he changes gear and he's going to ask a critical question which is printed there at the top of your handout, how do you live to please God? How do you live to please God? Now, in many ways, the perfect question for today, for Commitment Sunday, is the perfect question for Anna and Susie as they start their, you know, in a sense, they make a public declaration of their desire to follow Jesus, what does it mean to live to please God? Uh, at the same time, it's the right question if you've been a lifelong follower of Jesus, because I presume you want to make sure that you've been on the right track and that you're not wasting your time. It's also the right question if you're here today as someone who's not a Christian, uh, perhaps you're here to support a family member or a friend. It's, an, it's the right question because if there is a God, and I realise that you might not think that there is one, but if there is a God, then how would you please Him? Uh, because all things being equal, it'd be better not to offend Him. So that's the question we want to try and wrestle with today. 
Uh, you'll see what we're going to cover there on the outline. What we're going to start with at point one uh, is the first couple of verses, and the heading there is, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. So pick it up with me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. It's printed there on your handout on the left-hand side. Paul says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Uh, the first thing that Paul has to say to the Thessalonians is actually that he has nothing new to say to them. <laughs> Verse 1, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. So we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Paul is basically saying, just keep doing what you're already doing. Which I take it would come as an enormous relief for them. You notice Paul's lovely tone there in verse 1. In verse 1, he says, both ask and urge. Both ask and urge. It's that lovely balance between a request and an exhortation. Uh, in many ways, it matches the balance in verse 2, where he speaks of his leadership. Uh, verse 2, he speaks about instructions we gave you. But at the same time, he acknowledges the fact that all of us follow Jesus. Uh, and so he talks about the authority of the Lord Jesus. In fact, did you notice he talks about Lord Jesus in both verse 1 and verse 2. I take it to remind us who's really in charge and to whom we answer. Which, of course, if you're a people pleaser, uh, that's a great relief to hear. You live to please Jesus, not everyone else. Um, although it does up the ante a bit, doesn't it? So how then do we live in a way that pleases God? Uh, what the rest of the passage is going to do, uh, Paul is going to give two particular examples to try and show what that looks like in practice. The first is in verses 3 through 8, and the second is in verses 9 through 12. I'll spend most of the time on the first one. So go with me to point two there on your handout. God's will is that you should be sanctified. God's will is that you should be sanctified. Pick it up with me in verse 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, there on your handout. Is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who don't know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life, therefore Anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Okay, so so far in this chapter, Paul has asked and urged them to live in order to please God. And the very next thing he talks about in verse 3 is God's will, which I think is a pretty good clue. It's a hint for us to sit up and pay attention. Paul's going to tell us what, God's, what God wants and that's going to give us a pretty good clue as to how to please him. So, what is God's will? Well, you see it there in verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That you should be sanctified. Now, let me try and explain what that means. Uh, start with some definitions. Uh, the word to be sanctified, uh, it could also be translated from the original language, you could just say to be made holy. To be made holy. The reason why it's important for me to point that out is because when I do, you'll see that the same word for holy appears four times in five verses. You see it there, it's in bold on your handout to make it very clear. 
Verse 3, God's will that you should be made holy, should be sanctified. Verse 4, holy and honourable. Verse 7, live a holy life. Verse 8, His Holy Spirit. Uh, Repetition always conveys importance. Uh, And so, actually, really what we should say, verse 3, God's will is that you should be made holy. God's will is that you should be holified. That's really the idea. That's a made-up word, right? But you get the sense. The repetition appears throughout the whole passage. So then, obviously, ask the question, so what does it mean to be made holy? Well, Paul gives three illustrations in verses 3 through 6. Let me say something about each of them. Look at it again, verse 3 through 6. Pick it up from halfway through verse 3. Firstly, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Secondly, that each of you should learn to control your body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God. And thirdly, that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. So three illustrations of what it means uh, to be holy. Well, what obviously stands out immediately is that Paul deliberately links our sanctification, that is, being made holy, he links that with sexuality. He links it with sexuality. Let me say a couple of things about this. Uh, The first is to say that when it comes to being holy or being made holy, Paul is actually going to give lots of different examples. Uh, We're going to see them in chapters 4 through 6 over the subsequent weeks. But the one that he starts with is sexuality. The second thing for me to say is that obviously what Paul says here, it's pretty confronting. It's pretty confronting what he says about sexual immorality. So I guess what I want to say this morning is that if you are hearing this for the first time, or actually if you're someone who's not a believer but who's just thinking, oh, here we go again, Christians are always going on about sex, then straight away what I'd like to do is acknowledge that this is a deeply personal topic and I particularly want to apologise for all the very many stupid, dumb things that Christians have said on this topic over the years. Uh, It's true, Jesus does say that the only place for sex is within heterosexual marriage. But Jesus also says that we've all failed in that regard. At the very least, in the impurity of our thoughts. What he goes on to say, therefore, is that there is no place for Christians ever judging or looking down on others. I want to say I'm very sorry if you've ever been the victim of such blatant hypocrisy. In fact, if you're here today as someone who's not a Christian, then what I'd really love you to hear is that the Bible's teaching about sex is not the first topic for you to explore. I say that because, well, if you're not a Christian, if you're not someone who, verse 5, who knows God, then, to be perfectly honest... I really don't see why you're under any obligation to listen to what God says about who you can sleep with. Instead, I think a much better thing to show you today is why this God is worth checking out, why He's worth taking seriously, why He's worth getting to know in the way in which we do. Well, let me make a couple of comments, uh, and you'll see them both there on your handout. Firstly, why it's good to do God's will, and then secondly, what enables us to do God's will. This gets to the very heart of 
uh, what it means to be sanctified. So firstly, why it's good to do God's will. I've listed two reasons there on your handout. Um, first reason, according to Paul, why it's good to do God's will is so that no one wrongs or takes advantage of a brother or sister. Uh, we saw that in verse 6. What Paul seems to be saying, I think, is that giving in to sexual immorality or not controlling your body in a way that is honourable and holy or succumbing to passionate lust, it is in some way harmful to others. Actually, succumbing to passionate lust paints a pretty ugly picture of an out-of-control kind of craving or a type of selfish covetousness that almost always has nasty side effects. Without dwelling on this awful topic, sadly we see it in the extreme and tragic stories of sexual exploitation and abuse, when one person seeks self-gratification at the expense of others. So one reason, according to Paul, why it's good to avoid sexual immorality is because it means that others don't get hurt. But the second reason that Paul gives here, and it's actually a much more powerful reason, is because, as I said on your handout, because God's way is better. God's way is better. Now, I say that because in this passage, you see Paul deliberately contrasts verse 5, passionate lust. He deliberately contrasts passionate lust with verse 4, learning to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. Passionate lust versus learning to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. Now, that's actually, of course, the second reference to the word holy, the second use of it in this passage. And I think what Paul is saying is that learning to exercise self-control or self-restraint, choosing not to do what you want, when you want, with whomever you want, it's actually better because it's honourable. And that word honourable, uh, it conveys the sense of something that's noble or something that's commendable, something that's virtuous or exemplary. And as I've tried to reflect on that word this week, it struck me, can you imagine if everyone aspired to be honourable in all of their relationships, not just sexual ones. How wonderful it would be if all our relationships were not just how do I meet the bare minimum, you know, questions like are they consenting adults? What if the question were how can we be laudable and praiseworthy and outstanding in all our dealings? Well, I hear you say, Jeff, that's all nice and good, but it never works in practice. All of us, in and of ourselves, we have tried to exercise self-control, self-restraint at times, and, no spoiler alert here, we've all failed miserably. Let me give you a very trivial example when it comes to self-control. Chocolate. I could share my failings with you, but to be honest, they'd just embarrass me, they'd be awkward for you, and actually I don't really need to, do I? Because 
Everyone knows what I'm talking about. Whether you're a new believer, a lifelong follower, or someone who's still trying to check Jesus out, everyone has felt the frustration of trying to improve yourself, of trying to be more restrained, of trying and failing, and then trying again and failing again. So, what will help us to do God's will? What will help us to live this better way? What will help us to change? That brings me to the second point at the bottom left of your handout. What enables us to do God's will? What enables us to do God's will? You see, this is the point at which Paul shows us how we can walk in God's better way. This is where he shows us that it really does work. How? Well, God helps us to change and to do His will by reshaping our motivations and our desires. God helps us to change and do His will by reshaping our motivations and desires. Look at me at verses 6 and 7 there in your, on your handout. Verses 6 and 7 from 1 Thessalonians 4. Halfway through verse 6. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before... For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a a holy life. Now, uh, this is the third occurrence of that word holy. And this is the better way that God is describing. It is, as you can see on your handout there, what I call a carrot and stick approach to change and transformation. A carrot and a stick approach to change and transformation. Let me explain. Uh, we're familiar with the carrot and the stick approach, right? Carrot is an incentive, a stick is a warning. Look at the stick that you see in verse 6. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. Paul is warning us of the consequences of just doing what we're doing. Consequences not just here and now with each other, but ultimately before God. He knows what's going on. And he doesn't let sin go unpunished. That's the stick. The carrot, the positive incentive to change, well, verse 7. Verse 7, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. You know, waving a stick at someone is an important motivator for them to change. But so is offering a carrot. A carrot that paints a more compelling picture of a better future. God has called us to be, not to be impure, but to live a holy life. That's God's will for our lives. So, here's the thing. As it says on your handout, why carrots are better than sticks? Why carrots are better than sticks? What do you think works better at motivating you to change? A warning or an inducement? Well, actually, the answer is, it's the carrot. It's the carrot because using a threat to motivate us to change only works as long as we're afraid of the danger. And once the perceived threat passes, we're very comfortable in ignoring the warnings. Let me give you an example. I'm not saying that it's right by any stretch of the imagination, but I think the best example of 
how a threat or a stick only has limited value is our decreasing vigilance in response to the threat of COVID today compared to three years ago. Likewise, it is very hard to remain alert to the danger of sexual immorality when we're constantly bombarded with the message 24-7. It's not a problem. Do what you want, with whom you want, whenever you want. Now, once again, I say, Jeff, well, that's nice and well, but what's going to help me to want the carrot? Look at the answer that Paul gives. It's the last verse in this section, verse 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 8. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction doesn't reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. What enables us to want the carrot? According to Paul, verse 8, it's that God gives us his Holy Spirit. Now, this is the fourth and final occurrence of the word holy. But what's really interesting here, did you notice, this is the first time he uses the word holy, not in relation to us, but in relation to God. He uses it to describe what God is like and how God is the one who wants to enable us to be holy. God is the one who helps us to want the carrot. Let me try and explain. I think every person knows deep down that you need more than just your own resolve if you want to be more self-controlled. You need more than just your own resolve if you want to be self-controlled. I mean, your efforts haven't succeeded until now. They say the definition of insanity is just repeating the same thing again and again, expecting a different outcome. So that means that if we want to see a different outcome, we need something different. We need more than just another set of rules and regulations. We need more than better how-to guides, you know, 10 ways for you to be more holy. What we need is to be changed and transformed from within. And the beautiful news in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that God gives us His Holy Spirit so we can do His will doesn't give us a newer instruction booklet. Instead, he gives us a better set of internal desires. He gives us spirit-filled desires to be holy and honourable, desires to be noble and commendable, the desire to be virtuous and exemplary. Again, let me give you an illustration to try and make the point. There's a picture on the screen behind me. Uh, this picture you might recognise, this is the startup screen for a computer. And the person who's got it there, there's different operating systems, you know, Mac and Linux and Windows and so on. Um, I've got a friend, I really do, this is a friend, it's not about me. I've got a friend uh, who by his own admission is a total computer geek. Um, which means, of course, that like all computer geeks, he thinks that big corporations like Apple are evil, harbingers of, you know, death, you know, end of the world kind of stuff. But the thing is... He loves Apple laptops. He said they're just so shiny, so pretty. And one day when he couldn't resist, I suppose when you could say when he lacked self-control, he went out and bought one. 
But here's what he did next. He then went and changed it, changed the operating system to Linux. As a result, his shiny Mac laptop, to outward appearances, looks like a Mac, but you could say it's been changed on the inside. So that when you boot it up, it behaves very differently. Better, in his opinion. When God gives his Holy Spirit, he gives a new set of desires. Desire to do his will. And it seems to me that if he's the one who gives us his spirit, at least we're in with a chance of pleasing him and living how he would have us live. One final comment from verse 8. You notice there that Paul says God gives you his Holy Spirit. God gives you his Holy Spirit. Uh, That's really important. Uh, It's really important because it's a reminder of God's extraordinary grace. See, in verse 8, Paul is reminding us that we don't find God's Holy Spirit by being clever enough or persistent enough. And we don't earn God's Holy Spirit as a reward because we've been good enough. The very definition of a gift is something that is undeserved but freely given. And I want to say that's just such a relief. Because can you imagine trying to be holy all by yourself, all in your own strength? Not only will you never succeed, it's a terrible burden to have to bear on your own. But thanks be to God, He makes it possible because of what He is like. He is a God who is extravagantly generous, who gives to all who ask. That's why I said at the start that actually the most important thing for someone who's not a believer to hear today, it's not the Bible's teaching on sex, is to hear why it is so good knowing God at all. This is the reason why. This is the reason why He's worthy of your consideration, why He's worthy of your life. Because He loves you so much, And he esteems you so highly that no matter what you have done or what you have failed to do, he has given his son for your sins and he has given his spirit to transform you into something that is holy and honourable. That's the definition of grace. And it will change your life if only you will come and get to know him. Well, if you look on the bottom right-hand side, you'll see there's a reference, I try and do this regularly, a reference to some recommended reading. Uh, it's, if you want to think more about this particular topic uh, around sexuality and sanctification, this book here by Glyn Harrison, A Better Story, God, Sex and Human Flourishing. It's a terrific read. Okay, turn with me to the right-hand side and very briefly I just want to talk about Uh, The last few verses in the passage, this is verses 9 through 12. Uh, Let me read it out there for you from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, right-hand side at the top. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Macedonia. 
Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And remember I said at the start that um, in talking about what it means to be made holy, to be sanctified, to be holified, Paul gives a number of different examples. The first one was about sexual immorality. The second one here, or this one here, is all about loving one another. And you recall, back in verse 6, Paul said that one aspect of being holy was that no one wrongs or takes advantage of a brother or sister. And now in verse 9, he's actually going to take that minimum and he's going to express it much more positively. Verse 9, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Isn't that a delightful thing to know? See, back in verse 5, he talked about knowing God. Now he talks about being taught by God. Isn't that uplifting to imagine having God as your teacher? Whether you're a new believer, a lifelong follower, or still trying to work out who Jesus is? One of the side effects, I think, of God reminding the Thessalonians that they've been taught by God uh, is that it's a reminder that actually we live in order to please God. It's really interesting that Paul never says anywhere, I'll be pleased if you do this. He never says that. He says, God, this is how you please God. Because even though he could say something else that might work, it wouldn't be God's will. And what you find, what I find interesting is that when God raises this topic of them loving one another, did you notice what he immediately next says? He immediately says, we don't need to write to you about this because, verse 10, in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is the region of which Thessalonica is the capital. And Paul's something, saying something remarkable here, I think. More than just loving your biological family... Paul commends the Thessalonians for loving everyone. And in fact, he says that's such a powerful witness that, uh, well, verse 10, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And he encourages them to make it your ambition to live a quiet life that you should mind your own business and work with your hands, as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and you won't be dependent on anyone. Uh, what Paul is doing here, I think, is he's saying that love for others goes beyond uh, don't take advantage of them. It extends to don't be a burden to them so you can take care of them. And I think Paul's saying that as we do so, it testifies to how God's love has transformed us. And as others see that, it'll win their respect and they'll be intrigued to find out more. You know, one of the lovely things about Commitment Sunday, every time we hold it, so often we hear the participants say that their journey to Christ began when a Christian showed them love. Their journey to Christ began when a Christian showed them love. And actually, um, you know, that's my wife Wendy's conversion story. 
about when she came to youth group, she could see how they took their faith seriously and they treated each other differently, better than anything she'd seen before. Well, you notice that in verse 11, I just put in italics one phrase there, because it's an unusual phrase, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life. Thought I'd just say something about that, because you might be wondering what that means. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life. Does that mean that Christians are not allowed to seek fame and fortune? They're not allowed to aspire to be famous or well-known or successful? Well, here's what I'd like to say. Um, Sure, by all means, look for those things and, of course, be very thankful if you ever find them. But God makes no promises. God makes no promises And in fact, in 1 Thessalonians 4, success really doesn't feel like much of a priority for God, does it? Not compared with you being sanctified. Because that's His will for you in whatever situation you find yourself in. One of the things I did this week was I went and looked up all the other times Paul uses the word ambition because I was interested to see what else he might say on the topic. Do you know there's only two other occurrences, both of which I've printed there for you on your handout? Really interesting. Look at what he says. Here's how Paul understands ambition for a Christian. Romans 15, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Or 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We're confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so we make it our ambition to please Him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. Do you hear what Paul is ambitious for? He's ambitious to make Christ known, and he is ambitious to be at home with Jesus which is better by far. Uh, No wonder Paul will conclude this whole section. uh, Verse 9, We urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. We urge you to do so more and more. Wherever you are today, you want to move forward tomorrow. And uh, I put a picture on screen that perhaps will help you to have this as an image in your mind as we go from here. Now, you know what this is, right? These are travelators. These are travelators at the Adelaide Airport. My confession is I have a lot of difficulty with travelators. I almost always manage to get on the wrong side, um, and that's always very embarrassing. But, um, you know, you get the principle of a travelator, right? It doesn't really matter what point you step on. It's designed to take you further forward, faster than you might have got on your own. We urge you to do so more and more. Wherever you are today, still trying to work out who Jesus is, a new believer, a lifelong follower moving forward in Him. And can I say, this is the reason why we have been talking over the last few weeks to our church about moving to two identical all-age AM gatherings. One of the main reasons is because it seems to me that the best people to teach others how to follow Jesus, the best people to teach others how to follow Jesus are those who themselves have been followers of Jesus for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Through all the ups and downs in life, but they've just been on the travel later for a bit longer. 
can I say, to the more mature members of our church, do you know, Commitment Sunday is wonderful because it's, we have the joy of welcoming new believers into our family, most of whom statistically tend to be younger. But Commitment Sunday is also an invitation. It's an invitation to you to get involved in their lives, to urge them to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord and to do so more and more. And if you'd like to be more involved, I mean, who wouldn't be? Come and have a chat with me afterwards. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that by giving him, you have taken away our sins. And by giving us his spirit, you are making us more and more like Christ each day. So we pray, help us to fix our eyes firmly on him and to conduct ourselves in a manner that is holy and honourable. Amen.